the New Hampshire Journal podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham, managing editor at nhjournal.com, the number one political newsletter in the Granite States. So thank you, those of you who are part of that. And if you aren't, you need to subscribe today. And it's absolutely free. Just go to nhjournal.com. There's a little box in the upper right. Right beneath it, a little box where you can support NH Journal and our mission by uh, making a contribution. Greatly appreciated. We help your, uh, we appreciate you keeping the lights on. We also appreciate Dr. Bruce Houghton at PerfectSmiles.com for making this podcast possible. More about him later. We are uh, every Friday in your newsletter between from now until whatever something happens of major significance. Uh, we'll be doing a week wrap-up podcast here at nhjournal.com, talking about politics, politics of the week, and of course, in particular, the first in the nation primary stuff. And with us is notorious Republican hack, Patrick Hines. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. I want to make it perfectly clear, Hines is not going to be here every episode uh he, he inflicts himself on union leader readers twice a week that seems like i mean twice a month that seems like about a good level don't you think yeah i think people need distance from me that's what my <laughs> wife always says i absolutely think so too so look we're going to talk about uh the the haley launch the uh, vivek rhymes with cake Ramaswamy launch, where things are, is sununu in out etc that's all coming up plus later in the podcast I had a one-on-one -on -one with one of the most interesting people in American politics today, I think, Chris Rufo. He's responsible single-handedly for launching the conversation about critical race theory, how far it's gotten into public schools, including, obviously, Manchester, which we've talked about before. Now he's focused on the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion movement, which is trying to replace merit with, uh, with other metrics like race. Uh, something, by the way, that uh, Vivek, Ramaswamy just pounded away on during his visit to New Hampshire. So our exclusive conversation with Chris Rufo coming up on the podcast and some model legislation that's being proposed in uh, Concord that he supports. So all that's happening. There's a ton. You don't want to go anywhere, but unfortunately I have to ruin it all by bringing Chris Maidman on. Uh, Maidman, are you there? It's my long, my longstanding <laughs> ban on being on the podcast is finally over, and I'm back, baby. Okay, remember what happened last time. So, ixnay on the audio language, nay. Okay, let's do that. No, seriously, I, I, thank you for your time. As we record this Thursday, there's been just been a holy crap vote in the New Hampshire House. Please uh, tell all the novices out here about it. Well, first of all, we have to go back to last November when the. The voters in, in the Granite State elected the smallest majority uh, in recent history, 201 to 198 uh, at the outset. Right now, it stands at 201 to 197, 201 Republicans, 197 Democrats. And with the majority that small, attendance was always going to be an issue. And that's what we saw today, where Democrats have a nominal majority this afternoon up in the House. Nominal. So what happened by, is by nominal, you mean they have a majority. Period. They, there's they, more they Republicans, I mean, more Democrats voting than Republicans. That's correct. Right now, it's about 176 uh, Democrats in the chamber, 170 Republicans in the chamber. And as soon as they realized they had the votes, they seized on it. Uh, and the first thing they did was they took an education freedom account bill off the table and passed the legislation. And what this bill does is it forces students to be in public school for a full year before they're eligible for education freedom accounts. So we've written about this at nhjournal.com. The premise is that uh, they don't want parents who aren't 
already using public schools to be able to access EFAs. And so they came up with this <laughs> bizarre plan to say, you have to send your kid to school for a year in your local public school, because as Senator Deborah Altschiller from the Seacoast said, you say you need an, a, a choice. Well, how do you know if you don't try it? How do you know your local yeah. school with the terrible test scores and the crime problem is, is a problem? You got to try. Well, you don't know if you don't try, I think was her direct quote. So that means pulling kids who are in successful EFA programs right now. They're happy. They're doing great. They're getting great scores. Pulling them out for a year if they want to use EFA funding. That's right. And the, and the bizarre part of this bill is there's an exemption there for students that are entering uh, or just becoming eligible for public school. So if you're entering kindergarten, you don't have to go for a full year. You can go straight into an education freedom account program. But if you're in the sixth grade using education freedom accounts, they're going to yank you out of your current program, put you back in public school for a year, and then you can qualify again. So Patrick Hines, who uh, uh, as frightening as it is to acknowledge, you have in fact uh, reproduced. Um <laughs> What do you think the average parent's reaction is going to be when they hear the stories of these moms and dads who are telling Johnny, sorry, I know you love your, you know, math oriented, uh, you know, uh, program and you're really excelling and you were getting, you know, lousy grades back at, uh, you know, pick your nose junior high, but we got to go back for a year. Well, I hope that they'll be outraged and I hope that they'll ask, well, is the rich family on the other side of the town who doesn't use EFAs, but nevertheless have sent their kids to private schools since they were in pre pre-K, do they have to spend a year in uh, public schools as well? I mean, right. they're making a choice. This is not about the money. This is about family choices. And unfortunately they just don't want regular people, regular working people to have the same choice that wealthy people in Rye and all these other parts of the state where they, are gleefully send Democrats to Washington and Concord um, are chock full of. Well, it is interesting because Senator Altshiller sent her own kids to uh, Tony expensive academies when she had the chance, by the way, just so I, cause I didn't say it clearly. Uh, Chris from was with AFP New Hampshire. He keeps an eye on uh, all doings in the legislature for them. What, what do Democrats say? Like there was a hearing in the Senate on this bill and moms and dads showed up. Do you know what their response is when they're presented with these stories? For example, uh, there's a guy from Dorchester, New Hampshire, who had a five-year-old who's uh, been who's already done the first year of homeschool, and wants to know: Do I have to, you know, pull her out and send her to you know to local public school for a year? You know, what what do they say, Maven? Well, by and large, their response in in committee is is very cordial, very professional. Thanks for your testimony. We're glad you're here. Um, but, you know, by and large, I mean, these arguments are, you know, five, six years old now at this point since this legislation started being pushed for education mm -hmm. freedom accounts. Um, everybody's heard the arguments. Everybody's in the camp that they're in. Nobody's moving the needle uh, on either side of the aisle, really. Republicans mm -hmm. are for it. Democrats are against it. I think that's just what the way it boils down now. But I, this is what I don't understand. If you're going to do this, why not just eliminate the EFA program? Why not? Why? Why say your local public school is good enough. You have to use it for a year. If it's good enough for a year, why not two? Why not six? Why not 12? Why would you ever let the kids out? What's what's the, how does the year make any sense? Either the local school works for that kid or it doesn't. And even Senator Altschiller acknowledged that not, you know, all schools are a good fit and that 
some children do need choice. But why didn't they just kill it outright when they had the chance? Well, hopefully this is a testament to the success of the program, not only in New Hampshire, but around the country. We see states like mm -hmm. Iowa, Arizona, Utah going full right. universal with education freedom accounts. And hopefully the window, uh, Overton's window on this issue has shifted and the public perception of this is just so popular that it would be untenable to kill it outright. Hopefully that's the direction we're trending in. And hopefully uh, these, these programs continue to grow and give more opportunity to more kids. Uh, before we let you go, this is DOA in the state Senate, right? I I would say absolutely say that it is. And it's definitely, if somehow it got through the Senate, absences, hostage taking, it's DOA on Governor Sununu's desk. Well, uh, the first stop, it has to go to the Finance Committee in the House. Ah, we'll okay. talk about the financial impact of this. So we'll get another vote on the House floor. But heaven forbid it ever made it to Governor Sununu's desk. We have to remember, Governor Sununu just proposed an expansion of the EFA program right. in his biennial budget. Um, I, I can't see him signing a bill that restricts the program after proposing an expansion of the program. Chris Maidment, uh, AFP New Hampshire, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Great to be back today, and I hope uh, my band doesn't. It's not going to happen again. Definitely not going to happen again. <laughs> Definitely. All right. Thank, thank you, guys. Talk to you later. So I'm glad that he mentioned uh, Governor Sunu there, Patrick Hines, because you're you know political flack and you watch this stuff. I think that the parental rights and parent choice issue is going to be a winner for Republicans. And Governor Sununu has a you know win he can point to the FAs. And yet, oddly, when he did his State of the Union or you know his address and his budget address, he really didn't talk about it. But I'll be honest with you, I thought he was going to ride with this the way that Ron DeSantis is in Florida, where he's just, you know, talk, he cannot say often enough, you know, it's up to parents, it's up to parents. Hey, you know, teachers unions, you work for the parents. And uh, yet yeah. Governor Snunu seems awfully quiet on. Do you, do you not, is there, is this somehow a double-edged issue, do you think? Well, I don't think it's a double-edged issue. I do think some uh, elected Republicans, and I'm not lumping Governor Sununu in this category, mm -hmm. but a lot of elected Republicans are nervous about education, uh, talking about education with voters and in public settings because mm -hmm. it's sort of decades of exactly ideally, you know, being perceived as being on the wrong side of the issue. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, again, I, I can't speak to the governor's motives, but I do think that a lot of Republicans get worried about talking about education and think we're going to do the right thing policy wise. But the more we talk about it, the more we just get people thinking Democrats are better on education than we are. So we're not going to talk about it at all. I also think I think you're right, by the way, that education just it's always been a winner for Democrats. Republicans aren't sure yet how, how to yeah, enjoy right. this winner. But you've got the data. I mean, you know, NH Journal oh, went yeah. in the field with a poll just two weeks ago and we asked very simple questions when it comes to, uh, you know, decisions about uh who ha who should have the most influence in a classroom parents or the teachers and the administrators it was parents 59 teachers 32 here in new hampshire right. when we asked more specific questions about do do parents have the right to review the curriculum because as you know there are teachers groups that are, that are this is the fight in florida you have no right to know what we teach your kids it's none of your business <laughs> right Yes, 82% of Granite Staters say parents have the right to know about and review curriculum. 82 to 13. I can't think of an issue that has 82 to 13. I don't know. But I, you know no, you know, not don't in this kick, current political environment. Yeah, I don't mean, that don't is kick a, dogs. Lot. I mean, I don't seriously. It's like, you know, <laughs> I, 
what uh, what is reduced bus fares for war widows yeah exactly i mean and then yeah no sorry and, and then the key one because it gets to the culture war part that i know republicans are afraid of some public schools in new hampshire have a policy of keeping students behavior regarding sex and gender at school secret from their parents do parents have a right to know? Yes, 78% no 13. It's a six to one break. Holy crap. So why wouldn't, when, it, when the Democrats, and, and just to point out, every Democrat who was in the House today voted to force parents to pull their kids out of successful schools and send them to schools the parents have already decided don't work just for a year just to punish them. Every Democrat voted for this, to take that power away from parents. Why wouldn't Republicans rush in and say, this is none of your business. Let the parents make their decision. It's madness. And you're absolutely right. Uh, and, and beyond the polling that you've, that NH Journal has done, you know, this was the, this was the main issue that Senator Tom Sherman used against Governor Sununu mm -hmm. in his reelection, which was just a couple of months old Good or point. a few months old. You know, this was the he didn't have many issues to run on because he's been a very successful governor, but he drove this one home and he got destroyed. And so we not only have current public opinion numbers, but we've also got some real time election results that this is a winner issue for Republicans. And heaven forbid, you know, it'd be a family in Nashville. There was a story in the New Hampshire Union Leader last week about basically street fights happening in the school parking lot in Nashua. Heaven forbid a kid go from, uh, you know, a private school or a right. charter school and have to get ripped out of there and put back into a school where there's bullying and violence and mm. fights and, that are that is completely out of control. Right. And, and once I, again, just to punish the parents for making exactly. this decision. That's all it is, because after a year of your punishment, you get to go back. Right, right, so, right. We wow. just want to beat you up for a year. Exactly. And this yeah. one, every Democrat in the House has to go out and run for re-election next year with this vote because every yeah, single Granite State Democrat in the House voted for it. And I just, it's the policy, once again, setting aside the policy, uh, you know, I, there's a lot of, if you want to debate that every community should have one public school because you want to force community, um, uh, you know, uh, cohesion or whatever, I, I don't agree, but I get that argument. If, uh, you know, you think it's unfair that some kids excel and you want to make the, Excellent kids stay in the same class with the kids who struggle so that the kids who struggle can do better, even though the kids who excel will do worse. You know, if that's the kind of educational equity you want, I disagree, but I understand that. But just to just, I'm just a jerk. <laughs> yeah, it's, Your kid's going to nose picker high because darn it, I don't like what you did. Yeah, it's spite. It's policy by spite. Yeah. And it's it's terrible idea. I'm okay, with so, you 100%. So the hot topic at the center of this is merit you know the the kids who excel and want a school that matches their excellence you know put them in a school where they can excel and merit is at the heart of the campaign for president from vivek vivek rhymes of cake ramaswamy who uh nh journal had a chance to chat with at the red arrow diner and uh i you know it's funny on the one hand you say here's a 37 year old guy who's just written a couple of books and I can't imagine he's running for president. Would he be a serious candidate? And then you think, wait a minute, Donald Trump. So Patrick Hines, you have more presidential watching the race experience than I do. What What's your take on Vivek Ramaswamy? Uh, interesting guy. I mean, he's younger than I am and he's, he's made approximately $500 million more than I have. 
in his but, life. So. Can, can I interrupt you right there? Here's my favorite. How young is he? <laughs> Vivek could wait until the 2060 presidential election <laughs> to run, and he would still be younger than Joe Biden is today. Still. That's, That's how frightening. young he is and how old Joe Biden is. So just anyway, I'm, I interrupt you. Go ahead. Well, I think, he, you know, he's a really, really interesting guy. And I hope um, this is a very serious effort on his part. You know, a lot of people use the New Hampshire primary and we're glad they do it as a as a platform for ideas. And that's great. Um, he seems one to be using it as a platform for ideas, but also uh, to be a very serious person um, with some some very serious ideas that that deserve and that and and merit a platform. So. Um, I think he's had a really good rollout. I think people in New Hampshire were very welcoming of him. Um, and I I think he's going to be an interesting voice in the debate. And I hope uh, I hope he's as as interesting throughout the whole thing as he is, you know, from first glance. So but here's the problem. You can understand Yang Gang, but nothing yeah, rhymes right. with Vivek or Ramaswamy. I mean, you can't have the what the, the Vivek te- Vivek take the the Vakers. Yeah. You know, uh, make it till you make it. He's he's hurting there. Yeah, um, that's a little tough. And but you know, we just <laughs> we just recently had um, you know, an Indian American run uh for U.S. Senate in Vikram Manshramani, and people liked him. And he had, no, sure, and sure, he, sure. But no, but I'm just saying. Own, I'm, 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 what I'm trying to ask you is, do you think that this is the Andrew Yang of the Republicans for 2024, which is an interesting guy, interesting ideas, but in the end, really didn't get you know, taken seriously by the average primary voter. That's my question. Um, I, I think, I think there's a, there's a threat for that. Although I will say that his first announcement and his first video, uh, which was produced in, at least in part with some footage from New Hampshire, mm-hmm. um, was really interesting and thought provoking and uh, first class. So, right. you know, if he continues to conduct the campaign the way he conducted the last week, mm-hmm. um, I, I don't think he's going to fall into that trap. Well, I think that he's got a theme. You know, one of the complaints I want to ask you if you buy this about uh, uh, my former governor, Nikki Haley, is that she had a lot of great, you know, kind of rhetoric at the upper scale. You know, the, the big picture, you know, the rhetoric of you know America's greatness and, you know, et cetera, but not any kind of policies to wrap around. And so it took some of the power out of her messaging. That's what uh, folks like uh, Peggy Noonan of The Wall Street Journal said. Vivek has... Yeah a policy message that he can build on a single on this single platform of merit. Cause in his wall street journal op-ed, he rolls right through. We should use merit, not race to decide who gets to, you know, go to what college. And by the way, there's gonna be a big Supreme court ruling on that this summer that could, or, you know, or, or even sooner that could have an impact on them. It should, we should use it on who gets to come to America. You know, you don't want unlimited immigration, but you don't want closed borders. How about if we have the people who have the most to offer, you know, we we preference them over people who are just here, you know, to to take, you know, to to whatever, get stuff or whatever. Right, and and right. he rolls through uh, he and he also uses merit to talk about free speech. Let ideas be expressed. The ones that merit attention will get it. And the ones that are stupid will die away. And I thought that was a really interesting way. My question is. Do Americans still believe in merit in people should be rewarded for their success or have we all just bought into the where's my stuff and it's either where's my stuff from democrats because i'm part of the democrat coalition or i'm a you know uh uh you know redneck in a pick-em-up truck ones where my stuff i'm a you know forgotten white guy in the rust belt 
Well, I think I think that exists to some degree. I think the bigger threat is uh, apathy and cynicism. So I think most people in America support the idea of merit being rewarded. But we look at the people that we have leading the country, um, Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, I'm looking at you. These are not very impressive people at all. And yet they're in positions of incredible authority. And that decades of that, I think, have worn Americans down on this idea that merit gets rewarded. I think they'll be sympathetic to the argument that it should be rewarded. But I imagine most of the people that I know here in central New Hampshire, Laconia, mm -hmm. of all places, they're going to be real cynical about the idea that anybody can bring merit back to mm -hmm. um, anything. Whether it's I don't know how you school. can criticize Pete Buttigieg. He's amazingly good at somehow never getting anywhere near the biggest crises that the transportation <laughs> department. I mean, it's, it's amazing. The airline shut down. Where's Pete? I don't know. There's a huge fireball over a rail, you know, in Ohio. Where's Pete? I don't know. He's never there. Now, three weeks later, he kind of wanders in. Hey, what's going on? Hey, it's going, where, where were you, man? <laughs> and gets mad and gets mad and, and put off when people ask, like, where have you been? Yeah, no, it's absolutely, my, my favorite, my favorite time. was Thursday as we record this. So he does, he does his little dog and pony shows. And then I won't be taking any questions, but my spokesperson will be taking questions for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm here. You can see me. Yeah. But you know, I'm not going to talk to you. It's, it's, it's just great. And so, so it was funny because there are all these reporters who are there complaining about it. And then uh, I don't know if you saw a reporter, the daily caller caught up with him and asked when he was going to go, you know, a couple of days ago. And he demanded her photograph because yeah. they wanted to know who she was. So they could track her and everyone's complaining. I'm like, guys, welcome to my world. Right. <laughs> welcome to the New Hampshire right. journal where every Democrat in the a... state has us on a McCarthy style blacklist. And they've threatened other Democrats if they talk to us because they're so such believers in free speech. But anyway, that's enough self-serving whining there. <laughs> uh, so uh, now that it's been about, uh, you know, a week since uh, Governor Haley was in New Hampshire, how do you think her rollout has gone? Uh, spectacularly and much better than I thought it would. I mean, I like her and I think she's really interesting potential candidate, but mm -hmm. uh, she doesn't have anybody on the ground here. And in the past, well, nobody does. Well, but in the past, people would have these packs these that would often have consultants or field staff right. going during the midterms. And then they would use that as a kind of a, exactly. uh, a bridge. You know, basically, the, a, yeah. Right. And that and that would evolve into a presidential campaign. She didn't do that. But she nevertheless had an incredible turnout for, um, I think, all of the events that she attended, even the private one that she had in uh, Lincoln or in Bow. Uh, you know, people who attended that told me that there were tons of people there and they were all very interested. So she's had a great rollout. I I read you and I talked about the Peggy Noonan column mm -hmm. um, privately. You know, she was critical of Haley's message, saying it was a little bit two thousand uh, 1998, I think she said, which is, I think, a fair criticism. But I also think there's time. I mean, there's time There's time for her to let these themes breathe and to add details to them later. Um, and that will be the that'll be the test. And I think by every measure, I think she she basically gets straight A's um, in terms of message, in terms of making the right enemies in terms of turnout and making them media friendly. Right. Um, I thought she did great. 
I have to, this is what I, the conversation I've been having with people is uh, Republicans who are dubious about her saying, well, so what? It was just a week. And my reply is, I agree with you completely, but how do you have a winning campaign for president of the United States? First, you have one good, you, you, you launch and you have a good launch and then you raise money and then you do X, Y, Z. And it's a 127 step process, but you got to do each step. And so she's taking a step. She's done something that nobody, uh, Governor Sununu hasn't done it yet. Uh, Ron DeSantis hasn't done it yet. She had her launch and she did it right, as opposed to, say, President Trump, whose launch was less than stellar. And so she, you know, that's all you can ask a candidate to do. Just, you know, execute week after week, you know, that's uh, exactly and, right. And so she executed. I, and I, I don't know anybody, even people, I know some people who really don't like her. They're South Carolina <laughs> rival types because from my, right. my background as a redneck and uh, even they were like grudgingly admitting, yeah, she was, she did a really good job. So my question for you, Patrick Hines, who will be the next Republican to enter the race for president in 2024. You know, I think it's going to be Tim Scott, Senator Tim Scott, another really? South Carolinian. Yeah. I mean, he's making so many um, media hits right now and I, I don't have any inside information, but usually that's a buildup to uh, an announcement. Um, so I'm just trying to read the tea leaves. I, so I think it's clear that he's going to run. So I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, just real quickly, yeah. though, wrap on Senator Scott, who I, once again, South Carolina, I, I actually know him. Yes, uh, he's is, all people. <laughs> yes, is uh, he's too nice. He's got this upbeat, positive message, and he's just too nice. And the Republican primary base want people who are mad. They want Donald Trump, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. tearing up the furniture, and they want Ron DeSantis with a teachers union leader in a headlock, and that's what they want. And he's just the wrong guy for the current climate. What's your what's your take on that? Well, I think that there may be something to that. People right now, Republicans are in this thing where it's all about making the right enemies and, quote unquote, owning the libs, which is a sort of Internet lingo. And he doesn't do that. Uh, He plays a different game. His game is to build consensus and to get good policy passed and advance good ideas and all of them very conservative. So he's terrific, but he's not a bull in a china shop. And it seems like right now Republican voters are looking for bulls in china shops. I tend to think that's the way it is, too. It's not important that I win. It's more important that they lose. Speaking of the they for Republicans, Democrats, who's going to be the first Democrat to announce they're running against Joe Biden? I want you um, to be correct in your in your teasing speculation that it might be Robert Kennedy. I want I, that to be true so bad. If, if it's not Robert Kennedy, it's going to be Marianne Williamson, you know, and so we're all going to have our love souls touched by the seer, <laughs> which I got to be honest with you. I'm, I don't, you know, I'm uncomfortable with, with that. Really? I don't like politicians touching my love soul in any way possible. And I, I, you know, I haven't been able to talk my wife into doing it for years. So I don't know how I feel about that, but I think it will be absolutely hilarious if Robert F. Kennedy Jr. gets in the race. So my two questions for you, number one, will Robert, would a Kennedy candidacy be any different from Marion Williamson and nothing against uh, Ms. Williamson, who I, by the way, has been on this podcast in the past. And she's definitely an advocate for ideas that the Bernie Sanders wing of the, of the Democratic Party embraces. You know, she's a lot of stuff she talks about comes straight out of Bernie's speeches. So I'm not saying, you know, she's just a marginal person in, from an idea standpoint. But 
she's she can't be marginalized as a candidate. Is Kennedy a, a more serious or will, will he have more heft or gravitas in Democratic circles? Number one. And number two, uh, if they both run, is that a crack in the wall for the New Hampshire primary, which right now is, you know, the Democratic leper colony? You're not allowed to enter, must not appear. Or yeah. do people start saying, you know what? The water's fine. Let's jump in. I think um, he's more credible than she is um, because he doesn't he does talk about some wacky stuff, but he doesn't talk about love soul. And uh, he's got he's got a even even at this late stage of our democracy, he's got a gold plated last name. Um, and uh, I do think it says the water's warm. Come on in. I think, you know, I'm not somebody who jumps on on President Biden for his slips and falls, mm -hmm. um, but he had another one the other day or yes, he yes, did. today. And, um, you know, those are just bad looks. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, and he, you know, it happens to anybody. I, I trip and fall all the time and I'm half his age, but, <laughs> but you're twice as drunk. <laughs> so there's that. So, <laughs> right. yeah. so, but you know, they do it every president since Gerald Ford has had to deal with this stuff. So, and he has more slips and falls than most. So, um, th that's going to keep happening and, you know, who knows what the economy is going to do. And so people, and, and, I'm telling you, and everybody who's listening to this knows what I'm talking about. If you talk to Democrats in Washington, D.C., mm. everybody down there wants someone else. Yep. They're obviously going to stick with the franchise because if you got a sitting Democratic president, you're going to stick with them because that mm. means money. It means fundraising. It means all of it. But they all want somebody different. And uh, if they get an opportunity to have somebody different, they're going to take it. Patrick Hines, watch for his column every other weekend in the Union Leader, and we link it at nhjournal.com. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast. We appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you. And a big thank you as well, before we get to my conversation with Chris Rufo, to Dr. Bruce Houghton at perfectsmiles.com. I know Dr. Bruce and his wife, Stephanie. They are just great people. I also hate, hate, hate going to the dentist. I've been this way my whole life. And when I was uh, doing uh, talk radio and doing a lot of TV hits and blah, 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 I had an issue with my smile. It was, it was problematic. And so I talked to Dr. Bruce and he did my smiles. They say in the business, you know, did the whole review, you've seen this stuff. And I got to tell you, it was so smooth, so easy. The process was amazing. And my favorite, least favorite Dr. Bruce is years later, I did something and I basically knocked one of my you know teeth, the redone veneer tooth things right out of the front, like right in the front, knocked it out. And I'm like, oh crap, what am I going to do? Because I've had these for a while and it's right in the front and everything's got to match just perfectly. Dr. Bruce is so good. He was able to perfectly match my smile, the color, everything. When you see me, you'll see I have a perfect smile. You can too. He's right in Nashua or find him online at perfectsmiles.com. That's Dr. Bruce, Perfect Smiles of Nashua, perfectsmiles.com. So please welcome to the New Hampshire Journal podcast, legendary warrior against all things CRT, Chris Rufo. Welcome to the show. So glad to have you. It's great to be with you. So here's what I like about your work. You are not afraid to fight, and there are ideas that are worth fighting about. And that's one of the things that New Hampshire's struggling with is the people in the Granite State don't like to have these sorts of fights. They want everyone to be happy. Why can't the kids be happy? I don't want to make a kid go in a bathroom. Before we start with the specifics about what legislatively being proposed, what do you say to normal people who 
don't even understand the whole, you know, trans, whatever the heck's going on and just want to be good people. Well, I, I mean, I think that that's fundamental. And I think that the the imp instinct or the impulse is correct. You want to be good. You want to be kind. You want to take care of yourself, your family, your neighbors. Um, but what you have to watch out for is people that hijack those uh, compassion feelings in order to manipulate you for their political ends. And so um, sometimes, and I find this happens a lot, is people think that they're doing good, but they're actually being manipulated. And so you have to be um, skeptical. You have to be uh, uh, thoughtful. You have to understand that uh, not everything is coming from intentions that might be as pure as yours. And I think we're seeing that a lot. And really the key strategy for on the left right now is to uh, to, to kind of hijack those those empathy sensors and then to redirect them for their goals, uh, with which many, you know, most people don't agree. And so one of the, you know, the sticking points in the Grand State right now is a fight that a local school is having over bathrooms. And there's somebody who's biologically male who wants to be viewed as a female, use the female bathrooms. They were trying to figure out how to do it. They're going to say only one person per stall. Then, no, that's discrimination. So you can't... So, what should a school do when a kid shows up and says, you know, I want to be treated like a girl. And then he's in the girl's bathroom and the parents are freaking out and nobody knows what the heck to do. I mean, look, the, I mean, the answer is, is, is obviously no. I mean, you can't have biological males in girls bathrooms. Um, you can't have biological males in women's prisons. Um, you, you have to be able to say, you know, this doesn't meet the common sense test. This doesn't meet a simple moral test. This is something that could be easily and has been abused. Um, certainly, we've seen that in prisons, um, uh, and, and, and we have to come up with an alternative. And at the same time, you know, you you want to be. Um, I think you you do want to be empathetic towards kids who are struggling. And uh, you know, it, it, look, if you're a boy and you think you're a girl and you're you know 14, 15, 16 years old, you're you're struggling with something. Right. This is a this is a kind of big challenge, and so you should rally around that person, try to get that person to help. Uh, that he needs. But you can't just say, if you feel this way, you have kind of uh, a permission to go wherever you want to do whatever you want. Um, I think probably uh, most schools are going to end up as well, there's staff bathrooms, or a single stall bathroom, or a unisex bathroom, or a handicapped bathroom. Um, there may be kind of a third alternative in most physical facilities. I think that's probably the most kind of even handed solution. Um, but it's a debate that we have to have. And certainly we need to hear from parents. We need to hear from administrators. We need to hear from uh, 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 students even that might feel uncomfortable with this. We've got to get the whole debate. And the problem really is that the, the left wants to jam through without any debate and then shame people for even raising right. reservations. Um, that's not going to work anymore. I think we're beyond that. And, and it's time to have a real debate. And then, look, trying to find a compromise solution that can that can protect young young women, young girls, um, and then offer a, a, maybe a, a, a an alternative uh, uh, facility for for right. some of these uh, boys who are struggling with uh, feeling like women. So, New Hampshire Representative Keith Ammons proposed a bill that would simply say the state has a rational interest in recognizing the male and female sexes, and that references male and female refer to biologically male and female human beings. How this is even controversial, I don't understand. Is this something that you think states should be doing? I, I think it's beautiful. I, I think uh, Representative Ammon is, is right on. And it's a very simple bill, and it's a very simple concept. He just says, 
men and women are different. You know, you know, we're, we're created different. We have different attributes. We have different uh, uh, strengths and weaknesses, different. Right. Uh, we're, we're different in, in fundamental ways. And we, the government should recognize that. Um, it, in a way, it's sad that we have to pass legislation to, to, I just, to, to announce that. I just that. want to point out, this is what I want to point out, because I grew up in an evangelical church. And so I've been a lot, I've heard a lot of the debate between creationism and evolution. And of course, evolution is how we got here. It's the science. You can still believe God. It's, it's, I, I don't see the conflict theologically. But the, what's hilarious is the same people who are yelling at creationists saying you have to believe in evolution are now denying the fundamental engine of evolution, which was sex. All of evolution is based on this premise that sex has to happen. And so the two sexes, the two, I don't use the word gender, but you know what I'm saying? The, the male and the female evolve specifically for the differences that lead to sex. So now I have to say Darwin was wrong so I can say that some knucklehead with purple hair is right? Are you kidding well, me? Well, and this is actually a, a nice moment because, you know, reason and revelation, uh, you know, science and faith are actually in total agreement. If you look at Genesis, it's very clear at the very beginning uh, uh, from a biblical standpoint, male and female. If you talk to any biologist, uh, you know, it's very clear there's male and female with limited number of exceptions and sure. conditions that really prove the rule. Um, and so you have to ask, well, if, if by faith, by reason, uh, this is a, clear, a kind of clear point, and yet people are disagreeing, they're so bought into a kind of unhinged ideology uh, that, that, that it's the only way that the idea can even survive is if we suppress all rational thinking. Uh, uh, and, and, and that's what they're asking us to do. And I think that's what they're asking us to do when they say, you know, you should, you should call us by such and such pronouns. You should call me they, them. You should call me she, him. You should call me they, she. Uh, I mean, they're, they're asking you to lie. They're, mm -hmm. they're, and that's really the, the purpose of it. They're asking you to lie because they know when they got, get you, can get you bought into a lie at such a fundamental level of reality, they can get you to buy in any other lie that's much easier, that much easier well, sell. I'm not giving up on Darwin, okay? I, I'm sticking with Darwin and evolution, which means that there are two uh, sexes. I want to ask you before I let you go, uh, because you're also working hard in the, spa the DEI space. And uh, it, that's another area where... It's, it's, it's hard to get people to be honest about what we know about the facts, the data, et cetera. Yeah, that's right. I, I proposed a model model bill through Manhattan Institute uh, called uh, uh, Abolishing the DEI Bureaucracy and Restoring Colorblind Equality in Public Universities. And the idea is to take a look at these universities that have these bloated DEI bureaucracies. They're hiring people on the basis of diversity statements, in other words, political loyalty oaths. They're forcing students, faculty, and staff through these struggle sessions the, you know, to, uh, to uncover their internalized whiteness and, and their intersectional identities, and then to guilt and shame people or to make people feel hopeless and cynical about the country. Uh, and then they're actually explicitly discriminating on the basis of race in almost uh, uh, all of our public universities. And so we put together this state legislation to say, DEI bureaucracies are bad for universities, they're bad for free expression, they're bad for open inquiry, they're bad for a good campus culture. They're also a waste of taxpayer money. Um, so we should get rid of them and we should take all of these practices that are racially discriminatory, that pr promote kind of a, a left-wing ideology through the administration, and then filter out people uh, because of their faith commitments, because of their race, because right. of their uh, uh, political orientation. Um, you know, trying filtering them out of academic life. We think that's wrong. 
we think that states have a have a duty and an obligation to to tackle this problem. And so um, I know Representative Ammon is looking at this uh, legislation. I think others in uh, the New Hampshire State Legislature, and I, I just think that it's a really good bill because you know people on both sides I think can agree. You want to have universities that prioritize free speech, open inquiry, uh, people from all different backgrounds. And unfortunately, DEI doesn't do that. DEI actually works against that. And so uh, this is a good solution. And I hope to see it being taken up in legislatures across the country. I've got a story for you. It's actually from Pennsylvania uh, because Inside Sources owns a property there, Delaware Valley Journal, that covers the suburban counties just outside Philly. And so one of the counties last year, great. We hired a DEI officer. Hooray! And every member of the city of the county council says, we really needed this. It's about time we did this. We need to do this. So we, our journalists, just contacted the county and said, could we see the data for county employees? What do they look like? We have the data for the county. We know what the you know, what percent black, white, male, female it is. And the county did not want to hand information over. Finally, we forced them to hand it over. Guess what the two groups were in the county employment body that were underrepresented? Would you care to guess, Chris Rufo? Uh, I'm going to let you take that. You tell me. Yeah. White yeah. males and white females. They yeah. were cheering, spending a quarter of a million dollars to create diversity that they already had because nobody in the political side ever said, well, wait a minute, before we spend the money, let's just find out. I mean, look, if you have a problem, if the county was, you know, 30% black and only 5% of the employees were black, that might, you know, you'd want to know why, what was something up. They never bothered to find out. They spent the money first and now they can't answer the question. Why did you spend this money? Well, it's because we need DEI, Chris Rufo. We just have to have it. What a waste. And ultimately, I mean, you know, even setting the programs aside, which I think are actually harmful, I think that they're um, totally think unhelpful they're harmful? to advancing the mission. But why? Why are they even, harmful? Well, I mean, look, you know, in, in, in universities, for example, they're forcing uh, student admissions and then also faculty hiring to, to sign so-called diversity and inclusion statements. And what these are, are they're left-wing loyalty oaths. So they're very specific. They're highly ideological. They're you know, almost partisan political statements um, that you have to sign on to and submit to and write essays to uh, in order to gain uh, employment. And so they're filtering out any anyone from a kind of center or right of center opinion. Um, and look, you know, the, 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 the McCarthy, you know, the McCarthy era, the kind of McCarthy loyalty at universities were actually pretty simple. They said, um, you know, I'm not going to overthrow the United States and I'm not going to be a member of the Communist Party, you know, again, kind of aligned with the Soviet right, Union sure. against the United States. And that was it. Um, that to me seems, you know, somewhat reasonable. If you, if you want to be a public employee, you should not advocate overthrowing the government. Um, and yet, you know, that is seen as such a, a huge, um, a, a, an awful stain in American history. Right. But now we have something that is 10 times more, more, more intense, 10 times more ideological, 10 times more of a political loyalty oath and then and it's proliferated through almost every public university in the country and so i i i think that it is it is it crushes inquiry it crushes free thinking um it skews the universities even further left to the point where you have a, a kind of collapse in academic quality almost everywhere right. especially in the humanities and so i think that the first step to building great humanities departments to building a great public university system especially in the, the you know the so social sciences and the arts mm -hmm. and culture fields 
you have to start breaking up these DEI bureaucracies. You have to start letting a wider range of opinions in, and you have to start screening people for academic merit rather than their color, their skin uh, color, or sounds their, like a hate crime to me. I, I hear merit and accomplishment, and that sounds awfully hatey, McKate hate to me. I don't know what you're doing. Hey, Chris Rufo, appreciate your time. I got one last totally off the wall question. What is your favorite insult that's been directed at you? What's the thing that you've been called? I see every time I look you up on, it's like, he's the whatever, the right wing madman attacking our schools. He's, you know, he's the, the, the Mr. Potter of our public education. What, do you have a favorite name that people have attacked you? Oh, man, there, there's so many. It's hard to choose. Some of them are, 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 are pretty funny. Um, you know, uh, you know, there's the, the always the Nazi compare, you know, I mean, it gets really deranged. I think that maybe the one that I um, find the most amusing, though, um, is, uh, you know, when they say stuff like, you know, you know, Chris Rufo is a propagandist. It's like, <laughs> OK, I get I mean, maybe I, I don't know. How do you define it? You know, and, and it's people who are like, you know, elected Democrats calling me that. Right. It's like, well, I don't know what well, you're saying. I'm partisan, but but you're not partisan. Uh <laughs> I, I find them all kind of funny and ridiculous and uh, you know, you just got to roll with the punches and, and over time it stops bothering you. Well, listen, we really appreciate your time here on the New Hampshire journal podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the New Hampshire journal podcast. Please find us on Twitter, New Hamp journal on Facebook, NH journal. And of course at nhjournal.com where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. I'm Michael Graham with inside sources. Thanks again for listening.